Hello and welcome to the Hope City Church Podcast. We're always so encouraged to know that God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please send a message to lifechange at hopecityonline.net. Now, let's prepare our hearts for a powerful message out of God's Word. You might want to get used to this. We're just warming you up for the other side. Um, plus, we don't have anywhere to be. I mean, one o'clock, Cam's going to blow it again, and so there's really, <laughs> there's really, there's really no reason to rush to try to get to kickoff. Now I'm going to try to get you out of here fairly quickly. We won't be long or boring, but I do believe that God has a very specific and tangible and specific word for you today. And so if you got your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up um, to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Bible. One of the five, first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. And in these first five books, God speaks explicitly and clearly to the children of Israel, but the implications for his church are one and the same. And so as he's speaking specifically to the children of Israel about their journey through the wilderness and into the promised land, my heart and my hope and my prayer is that you'll open your heart up to what it is that God wants to say specifically to you from his word today. Deuteronomy, we're going to pick it up in chapter 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. God says this to the children of Israel. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about this idea of the 18-inch journey moving from your head to your heart, moving from knowing something to allowing something to consume you. And we talked about two key ingredients for that to become a reality in your life and in my life. Ingredient number one is to walk in obedience. Ingredient number two is to wait on the Lord. And the children of Israel had the opportunity to do both. And you and I, every single moment of every single day, have the opportunity to do both. That's what God says. He's saying, observe the commands of the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to him and revere him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Now, let me just pause here for just a second because most people, when they read about the promised land in the Old Testament, they focus all of their attention on the benefits that come with the land. And we're going to talk about the benefits that come with the land, but all too often we make the mistake of doing what the children of Israel did, and that is focus on the blessing rather than the blesser. Focusing on what we get rather than who gives. And the truth of the matter is that God's entire reasoning for laying this out for the children of Israel is to remind them that every good thing that you have in your life doesn't come from your hand, it comes from his. And so God's saying to you and to me today, I'm going to point out some of the good things that are going on in your life, but I need you to know I'm pointing it out so that you will focus on and remember not the good things, but the good giver who gives good things. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. That's supposed to be a good thing. Honey is the only thing good I heard in that entire sentence. However, moving on, I digress. A land where bread, here we go, even more good things, will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks and iron And you can dig copper out of the hills when you've eaten and are satisfied. Here's what I want you to do. Praise the Lord your God. Praise the Lord your God. 
for the good land that he has given you. That's the second implication. He says it first, and then he reminds them again. Praise him, for he has given you all these good things. And then, in case they miss the first two implications, he spells it out in clear and plain language. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, otherwise, when you eat, and are satisfied. Come on, guys. Next slide. Next slide. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, you will build fine houses and settle down. And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, watch what happens. Then your heart will become proud. And you'll forget the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Dang, if this wasn't a prophetic word for the children of Israel. Because God gave them so many wonderful, good, beautiful, amazing gifts. And several generations later, they had forgotten where all those gifts came from. And they turned from the Lord. God. God said, be careful, don't do that. Because if you do, you'll think that you did it. You'll think it was on you. It says that he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. And he brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce that wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. About four years ago, uh, President Trump's predecessor, President Obama, made a statement in a factory filled with blue-collar workers that absolutely crawled under the skin of anybody and everybody who heard and listened. If you were a conservative, you latched on and attacked like crazy. If you were a liberal or a progressive, you tried to pretend like you didn't say it because it was one of those statements that nobody really wanted to, to own up to or admit to or be honest about. It was one of those statements that was really tough to defend, but it was one of those statements that somewhere deep down, they, everybody knew there was some semblance or level of truth, but nobody wanted to talk about it and nobody wanted to align with the president and he stood alone when he made the statement. And the statement was this. Whatever you have, you didn't build that. Whatever you own, you didn't earn that. And his premise was that it took a collective work of people, generation after generation, and a collective system together, which afforded you the opportunity to operate and attain the things that you have. Now, it didn't sit well, nor did it was responded to in that way when he made the statement. 
But the reality is that God is making that exact same statement to the body of Christ today. Whatever it is you have, whatever it is you've been given, whatever it is you own, whatever it is that you you claim, whatever it is that you possess, you didn't earn it. It didn't come from your hands. It was a blessing from me. And don't you ever forget it. We don't like that. That doesn't sit well with us. Because we like the idea of claiming what's ours, working for what we have by the sweat of our brow, and then standing with pride in what we've created. And God says, no, 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 no. You didn't create anything. Anything that you've done has been allowed and blessed and multiplied by me. But the truth of the matter is we don't operate that way. We don't live that way. That's why people get all up in arms when somebody says something on a public platform like that. That's why it crawls under our skin and why it rubs us the wrong way. That's why we don't like to own or admit what has taken place in our life. And that is a significant migration of hope. We've placed our hope in what we attain. We've placed our hope in what we have. We've placed our hope in what we've built rather than hoping in a God who is the giver of all good gifts. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit it. But God gave us a mechanism. God gave us a tool. God gave us a way that we can combat that natural gravitational pull, that natural migration. And for just a few minutes together today, I want to talk about that tool. Because I think we know all about that tool here, but we haven't allowed that tool to consume us here. And because of it, many of us are losing this battle of pride and hope. God, I ask that over the next few moments that you bless the the reading of your word, that you open our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us, and that rather than being defensive over something, we would be receptive what it is that you have to teach us in this place today. And we're going to give you all the praise for it. It's in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. So for those of you that don't know me, um, my name is Robbie and I am privileged to be one of the pastors here that gets to hang out and talk and preach and uh, and do life with you guys. And um, the last year has been a year filled with absolute joy in my house um, because about eight or nine months ago, give or take, uh, my son, who is nine years old, uh, came downstairs and said, uh, because this is how we do with all of our kids, we don't want to prompt or prod or, or put anything on them. We would rather them uh, respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But my son, my oldest, my firstborn son, came down and said, I want to give my heart and life to Jesus, and I want to accept what God's done in my life on um, what God, what God is doing in my life um, on my behalf. And so we led him in that first step of acknowledging who he is before God and who God is to him. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of steps um, in the days to come, but it was such a joy to be able to lead our son in that moment. And then just last night, 
um, my wife and I had the privilege of leading our 14-year-old adopted daughter, who's actually the newest member of our family, um, in that exact same prayer and opportunity. And she's taken that step. And it was a really, really cool thing to watch, primarily because when we asked her, again, we don't want to force anything and we don't want to lead her in anything. We'd rather her make those decisions on her own. But um, when we asked her why she wanted to make the decisions she wanted to make, it's, she said, because I want God to be my dad. And man, that just spoke such volumes to us. And let me just tell you why. Because she's never seen um, the model of an earthly father exhibit unconditional love. And it's because of that, she's kind of always kept one arm out and distance between her and the idea of God. But because she's had the opportunity to come and see and experience, not only in our home, but in the homes of those that surround us, what it looks like for a father to be loving and compassionate and caring and kind. The idea of God becoming her father is something that she became open and receptive to and excited about. And so she's made this decision. And so um, our kids are well on their way. Uh, we got two-fifths down, uh, three more to go. Um, but we're, we're, we're believing and praying that, um, that that is going to happen um, when God is ready for it. But what's fascinating to me about watching my kids kind of slowly and, and carefully begin to cross that line of belief or cross that line of faith is as they do it, they do it with reckless abandon. Like they're all in. Where do you put your hope? I put my hope in Jesus. Like who, who's the only one that can beat Superman without kryptonite? Jesus. Like they're just like, they're believing in Jesus for anything and everything. Like their life is now rallied around and wrapped around and completely entangled with this idea of Jesus. And their hope for an afterlife, their hope for this life, their hope for anything going on in their present world is Jesus. Like they're just all about it with reckless abandon. And I can remember when I first came to faith, I was the exact same way. I was all in with reckless abandon. Jesus, you're my everything. You're my hope. You're all I need. You're all I want. I don't need anything else. I'm not dependent on anything else. Everything I need in life is wrapped up in my relationship with Jesus, just like my kids have expressed when they made that decision. But something happens as you get older. Something happens the longer that you experience and attain and walk with this relationship with the Lord amongst the reality of the world we live in. And that is that life begins to interject. Your relationships begin to interject. Your finances begin to interject into that relationship. So much so that when bills start coming and relational decisions need to be made and people start making decisions about you just because you're being you, then things start kind of getting in the way of this perfect persona or this perfect world or this perfect picture you had of what it meant to be a Jesus follower, your hope begins to migrate and your hope begins to shift. It used to be, man, Jesus is all I need. Everything else is fine. But now if a bill comes that you can't pay, you're hopeless. Now, if, if your marriage that you have dedicated your life to falls apart, you're hopeless. Now, if a relationship that you can't seem to get right over and over and over again is beyond repair, you're hopeless. And you still walk with Jesus and you still have a relationship with Jesus and you still come to church and you still walk in intimacy with him. But when these circumstances start kind of unveiling themselves or rolling themselves out in your life in ways that you hadn't anticipated or wanted, you lose hope. 
We move from a place of being completely hope-filled in Christ and Christ alone to allowing our circumstances and situations to dictate our level of hope. And there's this migration of hope that takes place the longer that we live and the older that we get, where rather than placing our hope in Christ and Christ alone, we start allowing our circumstances and situations to dictate our joy, to dictate our excitement. With the children of Israel, when everything was good, when the milk and honey was flowing, when life was great, everything's great. God said, listen, it's so, so, so important that when things are going good that you remember, that you remember it was the Lord your God. Because there are going to be moments when you're in captivity. There are going to be moments when the milk and honey is going to stop flowing. There are going to be moments when you're going to be taken over as a city. There are going to be moments when you're going to be taken into slavery. There are going to be moments when things aren't good. And if you placed your hope in all those good things, then when those good things are taken away, your hope will go away too. I need you to place your hope in me. But just like the children of Israel, we migrate our hope and place our hope in things that were never meant to be the source or the anchor of our soul. You see, Robbie, why are you telling us that? Because I believe that there's a mechanism. I believe there's a tool that God has given to you and to me to be able to utilize, to put in place that keeps that hope from migrating that keeps the hope aligned to where it should be, that keeps us believing in and trusting in and having faith in the one thing that will never let us down, and that's our Savior. The problem is we've taken that mechanism, we've taken that tool, and we've hijacked it. And now we we talk about the tool, and we've got principles regarding the tool, and we've got shows dedicated to the tool, and we've got teaching series about the tool, but the tool never accomplishes what the tool was meant to accomplish. And the tool that I'm talking about, that everybody's waiting on bated, with bated breath and on the edge of your seat, what is the tool, what is the tool? The tool that I'm talking about is a little well-known word known as generosity. Generosity. Now, the reason I asked the question at the beginning of the service, what's the one topic that you hate talking about in church that drives you crazy, that you're like, dang, I can't believe I showed up on that particular Sunday. I know for a lot of you, this is the topic. Because you've seen this hijacked, you've seen this misused, it's not the conversation you want to have, you've got bad experiences with it. And let me go ahead and put your mind at ease. This is not just a talk about giving or about church giving. This is about so much more than that. See, that's the problem. When we think of generosity, we think of it as, as something that we do. We think of it as this, as this principle that we should live by. But generosity is a tool that was meant to interject so much more into your life and my life. And it actually has nothing to do with those we are being generous towards. It has everything to do with us. Let me, let me show you what I mean. If we're completely and utterly dependent on the Lord, and then our hope starts to migrate towards being dependent upon other things, how does God get our hope back onto Him? Well, takes away some of those things. Now, God can either take away those things or you can choose to freely give those things. And when you give away what you've been given, it requires you to trust in him rather than the stuff that you've been given. Let me give you a a passage of scripture that I think will kind of spell this out for you. The apostle Paul was writing to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he says these words, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in 
wealth, which is how a lot of us operate. As long as we got enough money, as long as things are working out the way we want them to work out, as long as we've got this job, I'm hope-filled, I'm hopeful, everything is good. And God's going, no, 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 you're missing the point. I don't want you to live that way. I don't want you to operate that way. I want you to have your hope in me, not in your stuff. And some of you are going, wait a minute, this verse doesn't apply to me because it says command those who are rich in this present world. And I'm not rich, so this does not apply to me. Let me just tell you, if you showed up to church in a car this morning, you're rich. If, if, if you have air conditioning at your house, you're rich. Some of you are so stinking filthy rich that you've got a car, a room in your house that's dedicated for no other purpose but to store your car when it rains. Some of you are so stinking filthy rich, you have a bedroom in your house that nobody sleeps in. It's just there in case somebody shows up. You see how rich we are? You see how blessed we are? Because things that we think of as normal aren't normal. They're the realities of living in a blessed society. If you live in the United States of America in 2017, you're rich and you're blessed. So this is for you and this is for me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant and put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's the goal. God doesn't want us hoping in this stuff. He wants us hoping in him. That's the ultimate and attainable goal. But what's the formula? How do you do that? Well, he gives us instructions. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share generosity, giving of our time, giving of our talent, giving of our resources is not just there because it's a nice thing to do or the right thing to do. It is the mechanism. It is the tool that God uses to keep our hope from migrating. It's to keep us in a posture, in a position of being dependent upon him. Let me explain it this way. If you need a hundred percent and you give away 10%, Now you only have 90%. You can no longer trust in what you have because you don't have enough. It requires you, it requires you to place your trust and hope and faith in something else. What else? In the God who richly provides everything that you need to begin with. Now here's the problem. The problem in church world is that we know these principles. We know them here. We know we should give to the church. We know we should give first fruits. We know we should give 10%. We know that we should be generous to those in need. We know that we should plan our, our, our life and we should plan our budget uh, living off of less than what we need and giving away money on top of um, everything else that we spent. Like we know all these principles. But the problem is the principles are not consuming who we are. They're just things that we try to do. So we do them for a little while because it's the right thing to do. And then when life gets difficult, you know what we do? We stop doing them because they haven't consumed who we are. The purpose of generosity was meant to uproot selfishness in your heart and in your life and uproot selfishness in my heart and my life. But here's, here's the trouble with that. When we simply do principles of generosity rather than allowing them to consume us and we leave the selfishness in place, eventually generosity stops. Scripture says this, that he laid down his life. No one could take it because he gave it freely. Don't tell me that Jesus didn't give 10%. 
Because Jesus gave way more than 10%. He gave 100. And it was for the purpose of reconciliation. For the purpose of redemption. For the purpose of bringing glory to his Father on your behalf. Jesus was extremely generous. And when we are generous people, it takes away that junk that's inside of us that migrates over and over and over again in our life and allows us to continually, perpetually, and consistently walk with hope in Him. Now, let me give you a a great example of how and when this takes place. It's found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 21. And I'll wrap up with this. Luke chapter 21. Picking up in verse one. Jesus is at the temple and he's watching all these things that are going on, the buying and the selling. He's watching the, the, the trades that are taking place. He's watching these super religious people come in and give their wonderful, elaborate gifts. It says this, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. But he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's an interesting statement that Jesus makes when he says that she gave more than them. Because physically and tangibly, it wasn't true. She gave far less than what they gave. But in this passage, we come to a realization about generosity. God isn't interested in your money. I think I need to say that again because I think that the world has done a terrible job and has hijacked this message so strongly that it's difficult for you to buy in or believe that. Let me say it one more time. God doesn't want your money. In fact, I'll go a step further. God doesn't want your time. Let me take it another step further. God doesn't want your talent. What God wants is your heart. And the only way that he can absolutely maintain control over your heart, allegiance from your heart, keep a hold of your heart, keep your hope in him rather than on other things, keep your heart fully and completely devoted to and focused on him is when you live off of less than what you have. When you give away freely your time, when you sacrifice your talent, not for yourself, but for other people. God's desire for you and for me is to get to a place and a point where we are completely and utterly devoted to him. But in order for him to get a hold of our hearts, we've got to be willing to give away freely what we have. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving uproots misplaced hope. Sacrificial giving uproots misplaced hope hope when you make the conscious decision to give sacrificially in such a way that it causes you to depend completely and totally and utterly on him it has already done its job 
it's already working for your good and for your benefit. The woman who gave, gave more, not because monetarily it was more, but because it was a sacrifice. God is longing and looking for people who are willing to sacrifice what they have for his sake. Why? Not because he needs your sacrifice, but because he wants your heart. That's why the scripture says where your treasure is is where your heart's at. Where you put your money, where you put your resources, that's what has won the fight for your affection. You know what God says? I want to be that thing. I want to have won the fight for your affection. That's why I want you to dedicate resources to me. Not because I need your money, but because I want you. And ultimately, the place that God wants us is to be in a posture and a position of placing our hope in the Savior and not in our stuff. Far too often, as we grow up, and we move further and further away from that first moment with Jesus, where we were all excited and all our hope was on Him, we start allowing our stuff to become the source of our hope. Let me ask you a question, and this is the litmus test. If everything that you had was taken away today, would you still have hope? Let me really think about that. If you lost your spouse today, would you still have hope? If you lost your children, would you still have hope? If you lost your job, would you still have hope? If you lost your home, would you still have hope? Because I think if we're being honest, most of us place our hope in a lot of those things. And God's going, hey, I I need to get your attention I need to put a tool, a mechanism in your life. So what tool is that? It's generosity. It's being generous with what you've been given. What have you been given? A home. What have you been given? Relationships. What have you been given? Resources. God says, I want you to be generous with all those things. All those things. Why? Because it keeps you dependent upon Him. So I don't know what you need to do today, but I know you need to do something. If you're somebody who gives generously to the work that God's doing through the local church, I want to I wanna challenge you to give sacrificially. If you're somebody who hasn't given anything to the work that God's doing through the local church, I want to challenge you to give. You say, well, I can't afford to give. If you can't afford to give, you can't afford not to give. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't, I, I, I literally, I don't have the money to give. That's kind of my point. Is that you're dependent on you having enough money rather than depending on the God who richly provides. And when you, listen, this is gonna sound so counterintuitive and so crazy and you guys can judge me for it later, but every single person who comes to my office that says, I wanna be generous, but my finances are just falling apart. Everything's just falling apart. My life's just falling apart. I just don't have the money to do. Anytime somebody comes into my office and says that, I mean, the very first piece of advice I give them, start tithing. <laughs> and most of the time people are skeptical because I'm the pastor, right? 
That's like walking into Sears and the, the, the employee saying, you should buy a refrigerator. It'll fix all the problems in your life, right? So it's super sketch, right? So I often tell people, if you don't believe what I'm saying, give it somewhere else. You don't got to give it to our church. Give it somewhere else. Start tithing. He said, well, I, I can't afford to tithe. You can't afford not to tithe because you already can't afford to tithe. That's clear. The only difference is right now, it's all on you being able to figure out how to make ends meet. But when you tithe, what you're saying is, I didn't have enough before. I certainly don't have enough now. How am I going to make it? I don't know. I guess I should turn my hope and attention upward. It forces you. Generosity forces you to put your hope where it belongs. So I don't know what you need to do today. Some of you, you need to go start volunteering. You're super busy right now and you have no time to give yourself away to anything other than what benefits you. You need to go start serving somebody. Start loving on somebody. Start helping your neighbor. I don't know what it is for you. But trust me when I tell you the moment that you give up control and say rather than consume, 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 I'm going to allow myself to become someone that is consumed by giving, 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 generous, giving myself away. Something happens from here to here and your dependence shifts back where 